Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. Tonight's episode, I'm going to tell you right up front, is going to be difficult. We're going to hear both the story of a young life lost and the battle that his loved ones have waged for answers and accountability. This is going to be the kind of story that makes you clench your fist in frustration. We're going to be focusing on a tragic event that played out at a Nova Scotia power dam near Sheet Harbor in October of 2020. Then, 26-year-old civil engineer Andrew Nazdowski and a co-worker were on-site completing a survey of the water body's floor. However, a technological failure would soon disrupt their work and result in Andrew making the fateful decision to enter the water to collect a piece of equipment. Moments later, Andrew, a strong swimmer, would be yelling for help before ultimately disappearing below the still water. In the years since Andrew's tragic death, the Nazdowski family have been steadfast in their belief that the investigation into Andrew's death has been flawed at best and completely compromised at worst. And it's not just a hunch that's telling them that. Nearly every step of the way, it seems that Andrew's number one advocate, his sister Nicole, has been uncovering the kind of details that make a public inquiry the only logical outcome. We have conflicts of interest, erroneous death records, the scrubbing of online records, bureaucratic flip-flopping, and of course, opportunistic politicians. This episode is going to take us through all of that. Let's get into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we're going to be joined by Nicole Nezdowski. And our topic is the search for answers and accountability related to the death of her brother, Andrew Nezdowski. Just uh, before we get into the story, why don't you just tell us a bit about you, Nicole? Hmm. Um, I went to St. Avex. I have a degree in political science, and then I went to uh, University of King's College and did the journalism degree. Are you a journalist now? No, I'm not. I worked kind of in local media for a number of years up until the pandemic, really. Okay. Different positions. I feel like a lot of people change their career path when the pandemic begins. When you ask people what they do, many people have like, this is the story. And then when the pandemic... Right? That's why I don't know how to answer the question because I'm like, what... Tell me, my last year is not the same person as like what was prior to October 16th, 2020 and the pandemic even beyond. So yeah, you've had a lot on top of the pandemic. So we're, we're going to be talking about your brother, but before we, we do, I was going through kind of like, just even like looking at your Facebook photos and your online presence, people will often have a picture of themselves with their sibling or something. But you and your brother Andrew, it seemed to be special. You have a lot of photos. You seem really close. Can you talk a bit about your relationship? Yeah, Andrew was my best friend. Um, he's only two years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So he kind of was all that I knew about life, really, mm-hmm. right? Like, I was two years old when he was born. And I always had him, and I always expected that he would be there. So it's very strange now. But he was just the most amazing person like had the kind of energy I always say like he had like kind of energy go to the dog park and be like swarmed by dogs because dogs know energy so well and like he just had that energy that radiated like so so wonderfully everywhere he went he had the kind of laugh that it it would steal the thunder of any joke because he's so freaking funny the way that he laughs and Mm -hmm. I just I don't know I, there's so many different things to admire about him and just the kind of person that he was and how genuine and authentic and loyal, like the best kind of friend possible. Mm-hmm. So I lucked out big time. Yeah. And now we'll, we'll get into this more as we go, but nowadays you're, you're very much serving as his advocate for what happened. Growing up, were you, you as the big sister, was it like you're looking out for him like throughout life or was he kind of the big little brother? 
Uh, I think it was both. We definitely both had our opportunities to have to stand up for each other, but that's what we did because we were best friends. Like, I remember being in high school numerous occasions and having to go to the bullies and be like, no, not my brother. <laughs> so, and, and he did the same for me. Like, I remember him standing up to a boyfriend of mine in high school because the boyfriend was being an arsehole and my brother was like, so I think it was a little bit of, of both all the time. We always had each other's backs, yeah. no matter what. So, so when he wasn't um, entertaining you and laughing with you and protecting you or being protected by you, what, what, what were his hobbies? What was he into? Um, well, he's an engineer, so he's like super smart and liked to build things. Like he he just bought a house, so he built a full new fence around his backyard for his dogs. He loved his dogs, and mm. he loved boating. He loved the water. Ironically, like. He loved his friends. He loved a good casino night. He loved to go spend money at the casino. <laughs> but he was so smart in everything that he could kind of be an idiot at a casino every once in a while. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. Fair. So, I don't know. I guess that kind of sums it up. Yeah. Like, I could go on forever about just... You mentioned he uh, is, is was an engineer... What did, what did you know about his job? Like what, when you, I hear engineer, I have no idea what that means because it seems like an engineer is a million things. Yeah. What was what is Andrew's job? So he was a civil engineer, um, and honestly, I don't really know that much about it. I probably learn more about it now at this point in time yeah. because we'd always talk about it. But it's one of those things where he's like dropping all these words, and I'm like nodding along, yeah. like I get it, but I. <laughs> I'm happy for you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, but, but his job on the site that day, like he, like he was kind of the data collector, like the numbers guy of the operation, mm. right? So he like did a lot of that kind of work, I guess. They would go to these sites, collect certain data, and then he would go back and analyze the data, and that was kind of his um, role more so. Mm-hmm. And the way I understand it is he was living in and stationed out of New Brunswick, but his work would lead him to different sites across the East Coast? Yeah, they were contracted out by a number of different companies, I guess. So like in this case, Nova Scotia Power. So he lived in Rosse, um, which is where we grew up, and then was here working. And you were living in Halifax when this happened a year ago. So how, like, when he he be in Rothsay going to the different sites and whatnot, how often would you have been in touch with him around this point? Like, was it the kind of thing where you, you know, would call each other once a week sort of thing? Yeah, he would call me every time he was just driving in his car to one of these sites and bored by himself. Like, we talked all the time. Yeah. So I, yeah, we were talking like the day before. Okay, so, yeah. but you didn't know he was in. Nova I didn't Scotia. know he was in Nova Scotia. No, okay. it was just one of those like he. They get in the car, they come up. They had a job down in Lunenburg to do. I think they stayed the night there, and then they drove up to Sheet Harbor the next day to, for the job, and we were supposed to go home. Mm. So actually, I think there was another site they were supposed to go afterwards. But. Okay, so how did you learn something happened to him at work? Because I understand you were one of the first people that the news got to. Well, yeah. Um, so, the, what was it, one of his managers went to his house, um, and his girlfriend at the time was there, and she was the one that ended up calling us. Oh. So, she would have got the news right from the boss. She got the news from the manager, and then she, because they couldn't, my parents were camping at the time, they were in Fundy Park. Okay. And so, I think they were trying to get a hold of them at home, but couldn't, and so they went right to his house and so my parents got the word from his girlfriend as well okay and did you talk to his girlfriend or did they, or did you talk to your parents i talked to his girlfriend she just like phoned you what was like what did you learn at that point um it was a pretty horrendous phone call she really didn't have it very well together obviously at that point in time with that news so it was just like screaming on the phone and at that point i was like why, why, like, well, I don't know why she would be calling me screaming. I'm like, well, what happened to my brother? Obviously something's happening to my brother and she just couldn't even get it out. And eventually I was like, tell me what is going on. Like, stop screaming. And she did. And then we went from there. Was she, was she able to tell you what had happened? She just said there was an accident. So we didn't know. Like, all we knew was that Andrew was missing really at that point in time. And, um, 
like my parents were got in the car and were rushing up to Sheet Harbor and my mom was calling me saying like yeah put on like a bunch of warm clothes like Andrew's missing like we're gonna it's gonna be a long night assuming that we're like gonna spend the night in the woods looking for him okay. or something and I was able to get a hold of his boss um who was on his way to Sheet Harbor as well and he told me that it didn't sound like we should have any hope he kind of explained to me what had happened and like um he definitely wasn't missing like they'd seen him go under the water so mm-hmm. talking now about the present day we know quite a bit more about what was going on there and what happened but after talking to his boss and when you were going there what did you know like what what was the story they told you of what happened well so at that point all i knew was that they were doing this job the equipment malfunctioned andrew went in the water and he didn't come back up and mm-hmm. i didn't even know where it was in sheet harbor so uh, my parents were rushing up there. I don't know Sheet Harbor. It was getting close to dark at that point in time. So I was just planning on staying put until my parents got there at least. Because mm-hmm. um, we didn't even have any contact with the RCMP at that point. So I figured I was probably more helpful actually staying here and trying to figure out what was going on than Navigating rushing in my calls. car. Yeah. Yeah. So I sat here and like called every hospital and every like RCMP detachment because maybe he ended up somewhere else, like mm. trying to figure out anything. And that's when I came across the Nova Scotia Power Dam and like started to put it together that it was the Nova Scotia Power Dam that he was working at in Sheet Harbor and I couldn't find anything else but CTV had the press release from the RCMP and in it they said worker fell in the water Mm -hmm. and then they changed it very soon after to say worker entered the water honestly it was like by that point like within hours of the accident I was I thought automatically like why would you bother to update that one word unless you were already trying to be like he did that himself. That's mm. his fault. When did they find him or discover what where he so, was? So that night, my parents got to Sheet Harbor. Um, their friends went with them, and they went to the hospital and talked to the guy that was with him, and they kind of heard the same story that I'd heard from his boss on the phone mm. prior. And my dad called me, and he was like, he, he didn't make it, like, they're, they're sending divers in in the morning. So we, we knew um, that there was a pretty good chance. But I still remember trying to be so optimistic because my brother was like the toughest, strongest dude. Like mm. in my head, I was like, if anybody is going to come out with like a crazy story about fighting a bear in the woods in Sheet Harbor, it's going to be my brother. <laughs> so there was a huge part of me that still wanted to be kind of optimistic. Mm. But they sent the divers in um, and they took out the guy who was with him, his worker, and they took him out on a boat and they said they got him to drop the buoy and they found him pretty much wow. right there. But again, if he was right there and you knew he went right down, why did it take you 24 hours to find him? Mm. I don't understand. Yeah. The um, identification, who was it your parents that did that? They just Well, we him? all went, like we were, the three of us were at the motel and we had to go to the site when they found him and I was too busy throwing up in a ditch to pull it together and go and in your face wow they did that that seems unusual i didn't i wouldn't expect it to have been done that way i don't know that just seems so traumatic yeah it was very traumatic for all of us for sure i will never forget the image of my crying parents walking away from a forensic police truck Mm -hmm. you know The guy, the co-worker that was with him that that day, um, he had a chance to talk in the hospital, as you said. What was his, his version of the story? Like, how did he describe, or how do you understand his version of what went down? So he talked to my parents at the hospital, and the story was that he had gotten in the water to go and rescue this piece of equipment that malfunctioned. And so I guess to just explain the piece of equipment, yeah. kind of like it's a um, bathymetry data survey. See, these are the words that when you talk to me, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but so it looks like a tiny little drone. I guess it actually wasn't that tiny. It's probably like a hundred pounds, but it's 
looks like a tiny boat. Is the, when I, the photo I saw, I'd be like, that looks like if a drone, if a boat and a drone had a baby. Yeah. It maybe be this thing. Yeah. Like yeah, exactly. So it and it's like I mean, if you went and grabbed it in the water, you could haul it, right? Mm-hmm. So it malfunctioned. I guess one of it has. Um, fans or motors on either side and one of them cropped out so it was just spinning in the water kind of slowly and he just went out to grab it mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he's struggling to swim and calling for help and so his co-worker jumped in the water and swam out to try to get to him but couldn't he told me he, took, he did breaststroke the entire way to try to get to him and keep his eye on him the whole time but he couldn't get there and he made it out to this little island uh, in the middle of the lake or reservoir, I guess. And he was picked up from that island and Andrew was gone. Wow. Yeah. To get a sense of it, like how far out into the water was Andrew like to get this machine? Do you have, like from the shore, do you have any idea? I don't think it was that far. I know that the little island that Sean made it to, that's his coworker, was like just from tracing it on Google Earth, looks mm-hmm. like it's like 100 meters from shore. Okay. So somewhere in between that Mm. so not very far Mm. but I did talk to like another one of the witnesses that day and he said like Andrew got in the water and booked it like he was out there like that but he was a really strong swimmer and a really strong guy so he just started doing front crawl and Mm. so eventually what happens is like in Nova Scotia and probably the rest of Canada if someone's injured or killed on a work site there's some sort of an investigation was your family involved when this investigation was happening? Like where he died on the job, people were looking into what happened. Like what role did your family play initially in None. That? Identifying his body. That was it. Okay. That was literally it. Like at the site that day, we got called when they found him. We went up to where the accident was, did the identification. We kind of just stood on the beach there for a little bit mm-hmm. and like, that's when I was just staring, like, it, standing on this little beach that he entered the water. Like, I can show you some videos I took just to show you how crazy. Like, it doesn't look dangerous at all. It looks like you'd be going swimming in Long Lake or something. Yeah. And off in the distance, you can see houses and rafts. And clearly, people get in this water all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's mid-October, but it was also temperature like today. Like, mm-hmm. I'm outside walking around in a t-shirt. So he was just like, screw it. I'm going to get in here and go get it yeah i get that stupid choice of Mm. course he would say that now too but the problem is that that should have never been an option Mm. yeah i understand that yeah so we didn't have any involvement in the investigation at all we did that identification and and then we went home and the expectation is you know plan a funeral do a visitation and Mm-hmm. We'll call you at some point in time. And let you know what happened. So I guess you were, you were probably expecting at some point in the near future, your family would get some report of, you know, all the details. Well, everything. we just had no idea what was happening because we the only person that we ever talked to who was official in this process was the RCMP on site that day. Mm-hmm. And so after we left Sheet Harbor, we never heard from anyone. So this part of it is is settled. You, He has found... He's identified positively to be to be him, and there's there's no question that a tragic accident led to his death at this point. You're unsure how the investigation is going to go, but you expect an, an investigation will be done. We know now that things get much more complicated. When did you realize that things were going weird? That something wasn't right? Um. So I believe it was in November ish we hadn't heard from anybody yet so it was about a month after the accident and um i was able to find out that nobody had actually filed his death with wcb and so wcb went into this big panic and eventually got the department and the person who was supposed to be investigating this in charge with or in contact with my family and that would have been like the end of November ish. So, but it took me going and finding that nobody had filed this with WCB. But yet, they said that um, the other one of the witnesses had filed mm. and was off work on stress, but there was no record of a death at all. 
And WCB, just for people who aren't from the area, that's Workers' Compensation Board. So yeah. would they be involved in the investigation or would they just be involved in like paying people who are off work? And They're stuff? just involved in like the payout process. Mm-hmm. But as, as far as you were able to find out at this point, they didn't even seem to be aware of him dying? No. And one of the people that we talked to for the first um, for the first time at WCB told us off the bat that the way that these investigations have gone have caused family to go to media and just kind of like casually said that to us as we're having our one of our first conversations with WCB. So as soon as I that guy kind of mentioned that, I started Googling. Yeah, and you were able to find like multiple families in similar situations, specifically Luke Seabrook. Mm-hmm. His, his death is very similar to Andrew's and my... It's bizarrely similar. So... When Luke died in 2015, the department did a very similarly botched investigation, Mm -hmm. um, his mom, Angela, thought. And so she tried to file um, a claim against Nova Scotia Power herself because the department didn't find them guilty. They only looked at Luke's direct employer. Mm -hmm. Um, So she tried to file herself. But under the investigation, with the Fatal Investigations Act, you have to be within a year. So she had to go back to and like fight that she didn't know that they weren't looking at Nova Scotia Power mm. so that she could get her negligence claim time extended and oh, it was a whole battle but I because she'd done that and gone to the media about that I knew that I only had the year to work within this process mm. but right after Luke died um, this guy I don't know if I would say I don't know how much okay well yeah, I guess I can say so this guy named Steve Donovan, he's a dam safety and um, like dive safety expert. Dive mm. safety expert, I guess, is more appropriate. Um, but he contacted Angela Seabrook after Luke died, and she saw it in, he saw it in the news and um, was really concerned about a lot of the different dam safety issues and dive safety issues, because Luke Seabrook was a diver, so the situations are a little bit different. But mm. um, So he, Steve, did a or started to do a report into Luke Seabrook's death mm-hmm. at the Nova Scotia Power Dam. And then after this kind of happened with Andrew, I got in contact with Steve, and Steve basically like laid out all of the issues that arose with Luke's accident and the investigation to follow, and I mean, they're very similar to all mm-hmm. of the things that are happening in Andrew's mm-hmm. accident now. So, um, Was it, like, reading about, like, say, Luke Seabrooks or or these other deaths, do you think that maybe is what made you be like, you know, this is going to get ugly and I need to be on my toes? Yeah. Like, because what I'm trying to understand is right now it's like you are serving as your brother's advocate, lawyer, and a whole bunch of other things, it seems, and also are, like, an expert now in these engineering terms. (laughs) At at what point was it where you're like, you know, I got to... Get on my toes with this. Um, I think, but literally by November, I was downloading like climate reports and like water levels and all of that kind of stuff, just collecting any piece of information I possibly could about it. And you know, it went from a point of like I was just trying to understand for myself, but then I realized that I needed to save all of this stuff. So it was mm-hmm. really quick. Mm-hmm. Lee off the bat that I started to build that Google Drive and just started to save everything in it. But like in the beginning, I'm doing things like I was reading a study from the 90s about the smelt populations in the river because <laughs> the smelt were being impacted by the dams. So to learn how the dams were working, I'm sitting there reading about these smelt studies. Oh my so, God. Like, yeah, it got like, it's been a, a lot and right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So, and it just ended up so f- twisted so quickly that the more that I looked the more it was like oh my god I can't stop looking because this is crazy Mm -hmm. yeah and it's as we go you'll see it it seems like every step of the way you're just uncovering something that makes it look worse I sat on this couch night after night after night and would like find something crazy and like I'm surprised there's not like a literal track around here because I'd be like pacing like holy shit Uh what are they doing Mm mm-hmm yeah, well, let's get into it. I think what maybe when it, when I went through the timeline, it seems one of the first things that came up was the idea of the conflict of interest with the investigator. So first of all, this investigator that we're going to talk about, they didn't work for the Workers' Compensation Board, did they? Like, who was no, this so investigator? The Department of Labor does the investigation. Mm-hmm. So, so Courtney Donovan was the name of the investigator, the lead investigator, and she so she is apparently the only person that does or collects any information on this. And then she takes all of the findings of her investigation 
to her boss and the two of them will go to the prosecutor and have this conversation about what charges they're going to recommend. So Courtney, the only person collecting information on this case whatsoever, is blatantly a former Amera employee in safety. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that and that was right on her LinkedIn. What led to you figuring out her prior employment in this possible conflict of interest like at what point were you like you know this investigators something's up I'm she gonna... was not very caring at all like we got her on the phone for the first time and she we were asking her questions about what was happening in the process and all she had to say was we have two years to do our investigation and this woman's clearly like on her lunch break you can hear the breeze like as she walks down the street like you're not even sitting in front of any like documents or anything like this is so nonchalant for you and this is huge for us Mm -hmm. and at that point in time I asked um if they were going to be looking at the bruises on his face and she wouldn't say yes or no um at all and she said that's part of the investigation it's private blah 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 and we're like it's not a secret though because we saw them so are you going to look at them or you're not going to look at them that mm-hmm. shouldn't be that difficult of a question to answer at a mm-hmm. bare minimum yeah exactly. so it was after that conversation i was like this woman sucks <laughs> and so i looked her up on linkedin and i was like oh yeah that's something and what you found for people who don't know like the different companies is your brother was killed working on an, an Amera, which is owned, the parent company of Nova Scotia Power, on one of their sites, the person who is investigating it on their LinkedIn, so basically their resume shows a prior job not too in the not too distant past. They were a, like a safety coordinator for the company that owns the site that he was killed. Yeah, with. some kind of safety officer or something at Nova Scotia Power. Mm-hmm. It said yeah, blatantly Amera. And what I find most troubling is. When you made it known to people, she or someone updated her LinkedIn history to remove that reference to the company that... So it's weirder. Okay. So I, when I first started calling the like um, Ian Rankin's office and stuff, I was just trying to talk about the quality of the investigation and just like the communication or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. But once I finally started to say, why is the former mayor employee the only one investigating this, was when people actually started to listen government people actually started to listen because they were probably concerned. Uh And so she was taken off the case pretty quickly right Mm -hmm. after. Interesting. Okay. And then she cleared her LinkedIn. And then, okay. Wait, okay. And then actually her Scott Noss, who's like a higher up guy there in charge of this investigation or something. I don't know. There's so many freaking senior bureaucrats in the government. It's mm-hmm. impossible. Like, why do you have one investigator looking at these cases, but you have 15 people at the top? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but um, I asked Scott Noss um, whether or not they'd reported Courtney to the commission to actually declare whether or not it was a uh, conflict of interest or if it was just a perceived conflict of interest and it's fine. And they never did that. And they promised me that they would. But they obviously made the decision themselves to just take her off and never reported it at all. Mm. And then Scott Noss told me that she'd been taken off of all Amera and subsidiary-related cases and refused to tell me where that decision came from. But I'm like, how many many Amera-related cases is she on? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That she's... You're telling me this now, right? Mm -hmm. So... Now, another thing you you had said earlier is you confronted the investigator about bruises to Andrew's face or damage to Andrew's face. So first of all, how did, tell me how you learned about his face being damaged in a drowning. Like, was that something your parents saw when they identified the body? They did, like, they did get a warning from the RCMP that he had, like, gotten a little bit of damage to his face. And so they, like, the RCMP on site seen it. My parents seen it. And... Um, and then during the wake or the viewing, I guess they warned our family, like before we went in that he'd had pretty substantial damage to his face and it couldn't have all been totally repaired. And like, I couldn't even go in the room because this was already so traumatizing that I was like damage on, on top of this. Like, I mm-hmm. don't want to see that. Mm-hmm. And like, eventually I did. And so I know what was there, but it looked like. You know, somebody had a really, really bad bruise and somebody tried really hard to cover it up with makeup, as they do. And 
they just couldn't be. Mm-hmm. And so even like everybody acknowledged the fact that these bruises existed. There was no no doubt. Like there he was had no doubt. bruises to his face. Yeah, 100%. I, like he had like damage to his nose and his lip and like bruising all over the side of his face. Mm-hmm. And how does this come into the investigation? Because you um you you challenge the investigator on whether or not they're going to be looking into the the bruising on his face. I believe that there comes a point where you you begin to suspect that they weren't even aware of this bruising. Am I understanding that right? Yeah. So it was the beginning of March um, that after calling Lena Diabs, like the Minister of Labor, and Rankin's office and stuff, they finally got me in touch with Scott Burbridge, who's the manager of investigations at the Department of Labor. And in that conversation, I knew they totally screwed up. But that was the conversation where, you know, he told me that they were only looking at the two companies involved and mm. that there, they had nothing against the power company and that there were absolutely no injuries to his face and just saying like, all these crazy things. So when he denied that, I asked for the autopsy report myself and I got a copy of it. And in it, it didn't have any mention of the bruising to his face it had like a very vague mention of um a slight pink abrasion i believe was the wording and it only mentioned like the injuries to his nose and lip but it didn't say anything about bruising and the dates of the accident and summary of the full events was wrong on the autopsy report so they weren't looking at the right day and they didn't even note the injuries in the autopsy report. So I then got in contact with the medical examiner's office and fought with numerous people over there and eventually got them to amend the autopsy report and they changed it and sent out a new one within 24 hours. And I mean, I realizing now that their amendments to it were probably to satisfy what I thought was happening at that point in time Mm -hmm. and wasn't it's still to date not true because now I've gone to the point where I looked at the pictures for myself to be like, did you like, could they have missed it or could they not have? And if the province's medical examiner looked at that face and said, there's no injuries to it, then we have a big freaking problem. Yeah. Cause you got the copies of photos from like the autopsy or whatnot that you, so you see it in, in his face. It's very clear. Yeah. So in just to recap is when you get the autopsy to review, you find that it doesn't mention the bruises that you you know exist and saw in the photos. Secondly, the date was flawed. Well, I didn't look at the photos until actually like just last month. Oh, really? To confirm like mm-hmm. some things, but yeah. So at that point, they, it just wasn't mentioned okay. in the like worded doc. But regardless, autopsy. without the photos, you knew it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, as far as the date of death, because this will become important, mm-hmm. tell me about what it said on the autopsy for the date of death and maybe how they came to that day. Right. So, when I guess your date of death is officially when they find you. Mm-hmm. So, his date of death was October the 17th, technically, but he died on the 16th, the afternoon of. And In the summary of events on the autopsy report, it says that um, the accident happened on the 17th and he was found a couple of hours later. Mm -hmm. But what is significant about that is that the dam was turned off to assist the searchers in the process, but it was on when he was working Mm -hmm. and it's quoted by the Halifax fire in some of the news stories that were coming out that the dam Nova Scotia power had turned the dam off to assist Mm -hmm. with searchers. So obviously between missing the bruising and then having the dates wrong that showed the day that the dam was off, like how it's just, it's it's crazy to for there to be a mistake anyway. But in this case, those two mistakes can have a huge impact on trying to interpret what must have happened or what may have happened. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's the medical examiner's job to determine or to look at the manner of death, too. Mm -hmm. So he just wrote drowning and then closed the book. Mm -hmm. And I brought this up with Scott Burbridge, the investigator, um, like two days prior. Mm -hmm. And so he was fully aware that I had these concerns that I, that, this autopsy report was wrong. They spoke to the medical examiner's office within that period mm-hmm. of like two days. And then the next day, the medical examiner changes the autopsy 
to match what I thought was going on at that time. Mm -hmm. So it looks like to me, the department and the medical examiner had a conversation, said this is what she thinks is going on. And this is like, you could probably change this piece of bit satisfier and get her to shut up. Mm -hmm. But then it was like, well, why can you change an autopsy report? Like, yeah. why was it wrong? Yeah, yeah. And just to, to explain maybe some of the, the, the problems with these two facts. First of all, there's a question of how he ended up in the water. And the bruising to his face may have some... Well, it's not a question of how he ended up in the water or, because he uh, got in the water. Yeah, how he ended up under the water. Yeah, 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 that's it. How does the bruising come into play? Like, what could the bruising Well, tell? at first, I thought that maybe he had gotten hit in the piece of, by the piece of equipment in the head or something, and that caused him to be disoriented. Mm. So it was either that's what happened or the dam was on, and so that caused him to go under. And so it was literally either one of those two things would clarify a lot, mm -hmm. but they were both missing. And for like the dam being on, meaning like the dam would be open. So water, some water would be going through it, which would create like an, I think it's called undercurrent where the water yeah. would kind of pull you under. Well, like it's a hydro dam, right? So if there's not a current in the water, then Swedish power should probably shut them all down, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So yeah. And, and I think that. You know, you when you're working under these circumstances, you a you would never put people in the water at that point in time. Like from what I've gathered, that's peak power consumption time. So that's when people are you know consuming power the most. That's yeah. when these things are operating at their prime. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't even be putting people to work in these waters. Mm -hmm. So and so now just to get back to the autopsy is. Without knowledge of the bruising, it would be really hard to figure out if the dam, if the pressure pulled him under because the dam was open or the equipment hit him. If he had bruises on his back or something, I don't think we'd be here today. Mm -hmm. But it's because I saw those bruises that really kind of tipped this whole thing off. We've gone through enough where we know you found big problems and errors within the initial investigation and work didn't seem to be getting anywhere with it. Tell me a bit about the avenues you took and the steps you took to escalate your concerns, both in terms of media and politically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tried to talk to everybody I possibly could. Like, I called... The minister's office, I called the premier's office, I called the oppositions, I called the labor oppositions, I talked to the Federation of Labor. Like, I literally talked to everybody I friggin' could about this, and I couldn't find one person who was gonna say, I'll help you. When you say you talked to the oppositions, do you mean like you were calling people representing the government in power and then representing, and then called the other political parties? Yeah, I've talked to all the labor oppositions. I, I tried because it's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what, what, one of you has to. Be able to say something, right? Yeah. So I, I talked to everybody. Wow. Yeah. And what did you get out of it? Other than a whole bunch of phone calls and mounting frustration. Just, like at first it was just like passing off me off to the next person and the next person and the next person. And I just, every time I'd talk to somebody else, I'd call Ian Rankin's office back and be like, I want to talk to you, yeah. not the people making the problems. And Ian Rankin was our premier at the time. Um, it Yes. Yeah, well, it gets kind of complicated because he was your MLA yes. when Andrew died, but he became the premier. Yes. And so I thought when he became premier, I was like, great, fine. My MLA is the premier. He'll just go in and freaking fix this. Yeah. Not the case. Not the case at all. No. <laughs> so you went through all levels of government, basically, and the different parties involved in this you were getting nowhere, but it seemed to get even worse than that, where I understand looking at your Twitter and reading some of the articles and stuff, you were just like kind of just trying to arrange meetings with the premier and just showing up at the office. Am I, is that what I have? Doing? I've done everything I possibly can. I've gone to his office on numerous occasions and I've like talked to his secretary and I've sent many emails and phone calls and I had to put my number on blocked calls for a period of time because they don't answer my phone calls oh. and i mean like they even went so far as to call my parents and to tell them that 
I was emailing too much and impeding the investigation. Like, just answer once. Answer one question mm-hmm. once. Yeah. And you could have gotten rid of me, but you never answered once. Yeah. And I um, I read a lot of the emails because you shared with me a lot of the documents. And the emails you sent, they were, yes, they were pointed questions, but they made sense and they were logical. And I, like, I truly agree. I believe and agree with you that I think they didn't want to answer them because the question, the answers were damning or... Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's... Because the questions I was asking was like, why did Courtney Donovan end up in this position in the first place? Mm-hmm. Where did she go? Like, why did you tell me blatantly that you didn't look at Nova Scotia Power? Why were there issues on an autopsy report? Like, these are not unreasonable questions. Yeah, yeah. You weren't just trying to hurry them along. You were, yeah. Now, um, let's, we use the word hostile to describe you a few times. People listening may not get the inside joke there. <laughs> Who, how did you find out they were referring to you as hostile? In the freedom of information request that I, I put in. So they'd stopped talking to me after I went to the media, pretty much. Mm-hmm. They cut communications and they, they passed me off to the Department of Justice and said I wasn't, no, at first I wasn't allowed to talk to the Department of Labor, only the Department of Justice. And then I wasn't allowed to talk to the government at all for a period of time. But it was right after I went to the media that he was emailing the higher-ups in the Department of Labor saying... Who is he? He is Scott Burbridge. Okay. Yeah, the manager of investigations. Yeah. Yeah, he in that... So they stopped talking to me. I filed the FOI asking for internal communications with my name on them to figure out what they were saying about me to have gotten to the point that they're no longer speaking to me. And within that, he... It was right after the CBC News story came out. I sent him a text and I just asked him if he could send me the file so I could just do it without having to sift through lies on top of it all. <laughs> and then he emailed all his higher ups and said, this is a hostile individual who's launched a now public attack and I would like permission to, I don't know. It's like, it was so stupid. Like, like the way that he talked about me was like militant level kind of thing. You wow. know, like. <laughs> Interesting. Now, one other thing we haven't kind of explained is, um, the different parties involved in Andrew's in Andrew's work and ultimately in Andrew's death because Andrew didn't work for Nova Scotia Power. Mm-hmm. He worked and correct me if I'm wrong or explain this better when I finish. Andrew worked for an engineering company out of New Brunswick. Nova Scotia Power needed some work done, so they Nova Scotia Power, who owned the site, hired some company who subcontracted it to Andrew's employer. Yeah, so. From, I mean, from what I understand, like Nova Scotia Power is the site owner. They needed to have this work done. They're they're doing their hydro dam refurbishment projects right now. So it's like, it's a big project. So they contracted out this one, um, I think they're like geoscientists, geotech, it's, or Gemtech is the middle company. And then they contracted out my brother's company to come in and do like this specific data collection. Okay. So they're kind of all like involved in the job process. Mm-hmm. So without jumping too far ahead... When you, you're looking for answers and accountability in this, what where do you see Nova Scotia, uh, Nova Scotia Power and Amera's responsibility? Like, where what where is it within the story that you think they should have intervened in some way? It's the it's a total like the operation of their sites in general. Like, they didn't have a pre-site meeting, safety meeting. Like, the guy that was supposed to be managing the site wasn't anywhere nearby. Like, mm-hmm. and. Like going back to the issues with the way that the dams are allowed to operate here, they didn't even have a sign up that said like "Don't go in this water." And it's like since then, I've gone back to the site, and they've put up signs since then. Mm. It's very clear those signs weren't up all winter; they're on two by fours, like the woods brand new. Yeah. Okay. So like. <laughs> so the the like I guess the to put it in simple terms, they basically just pass the keys to the dam to like you know your brother and his coworker, like yeah, go on in there and take care of things without. You know, having the appropriate... Even appropriate, like, site orientation, right? Mm. Like, he would be doing this kind of data collection on various different sites. It could be in the woods. It could be on a dam. Mm. It could be anywhere. Mm. So, as a site owner, you have the responsibility to make sure that the people you bring onto your job site know what the potential risks and hazards Mm. are. Mm. And if it got to the point where 
you know, that piece of equipment did need to be rescued, then you have another meeting and say, okay, here's how we're going to assess this situation. Like there's just no proper management on these sites because they don't have to. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, to back up uh, with another thing, we, we were talking about Ian Rankin was your MLA. So you were going to him at one point as your MLA for assistance. He became premier. You were then again, still involved with him when uh, looking for assistance when he was premier and presumably and just had for power. like for the record straight Rankins talked to me one time one time out of all of this so wow okay yeah what I was going to get at and I don't know how comfortable you are talking with this but this story has it is political in the way that there's bureaucratic people and government involved in the investigation and whatnot but you almost got pulled into it politically as well are you okay yeah, talking about that 100 percent. and i've given him a grace period and told him over and over again this does not look like a stellar performance on your part mm-hmm. either because this a lot of this story with your search for accountability and answers and andrew's death happened or were playing out as we had a provincial election yeah so you were publicly you had a problem with the leader of our province ian rankin uh, at the time, and you, but you were also going to the opposition, the people who were running against Ian Rankin in the in the election that was happening, at the time that you were searching for answers. So how did this all happen? Yeah, um, it was. So I first talked to Tim Houston and Gary Burrell first. They called me as soon as the first story came out in CBC. So these are, are the other leaders of the of the parties yes. that would have been involved in this election that happened. Yeah. So they called me, and that would have been, but that would have been prior to the election. I mm. talked to them for the first time, and then, it, it, yeah, I guess it was all prior to the election. So he called me and asked if I would run against Franken and you know, kind of propositioned it as being a really great opportunity for me to get this change and get my story out there. And, you know, he said it's a hard seat, but you might be able to give him a run for it, like blah, blah, blah. And was just so excited to have Ian Rankin find out that I was considering this. And at one point in time, I did say, yes, I considered it. And I was thinking about it. And I'm like, okay, it will... If Ian Rankin won't talk to me, maybe I do just say yes and go and fight him along the whole campaign trail. But I couldn't get Tim Houston ever once say, I'm going to help you with this or ever publicly say, I'm going to support you on this. So it got to the point where it was like, well, I'm I'm never going to put my name behind you if you're not going to tell me that you're going to help me with this. And so I said, absolutely not. Yeah. It's like, I'm almost speechless. When you told me about that, I was almost, I'm almost speechless still to this day about it. But it's, an election was happening. One of the, the leader of the party that's now in power w- encouraged you to run against the prior leader in this, in this area as a way of further, like, was, was there ever like... Um, well, he propositioned it, it that way. Like, he was like... This would be like a great platform, like you could make a lot of change and like, what, like kind of tried to sell it that way. Yeah. Okay. And I, yeah, didn't agree. Wow. And then in the end, you didn't do it. You haven't gotten any support. It's like. Yeah. No, he, well, I mean, it's, I also, I'm not naive enough to believe that a PC government is going to come in and take on a company like Nova Scotia Power in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I told him I absolutely was not going to do that. And then he never talked to me again. And I was irritated by it because I also gave him the opportunity, because I said to him at one point in time, like he'd seen all my emails, he'd heard my conversations with Ian Rankin. And I said, like, what is your play here? Because this is a weird play. Mm -hmm. So what do you want me to come in and run my mouth against Rankin and then make him look like a dummy throughout the election? And then you can, at the end, help me with this? Like, Whatever it takes, mm-hmm. I will do it. And he just kind of like laugh it off, whatever. And it uh, was very interesting. Like there was like no, like he's fully aware of the full scope of the issues. Mm-hmm. Well, it just shows how, how, how much is against the truth from coming out and the accountability. And then it's like you get involved in politicians in the political world more than the average person, much more than the average person who's trying to get accountability. And not only do you not get anywhere, that you almost get sucked into this whole thing 
like that's kind of what you get in return for going for help is almost get sucked into this whole thing. Yeah. It's bizarre. So without giving away too much is I'm willing to say you feel like accountability and an answer in this is being taken away or hidden for some reason. Who is hiding the truth and why do you think that's happening? Or, or maybe not the truth, but who is avoiding accountability in your mind? I feel like it's, it comes down to probably the government mm-hmm. because really they should have they should have done better when Luke died. And mm-hmm. there's, I mean, there's now the report out that shows like all of the failings that they had in that case. Do you feel like you're on one side of the table, on the other side of the table, you have Nova Scotia Power, the province? Who else do you feel is like kind of like against the, you and Andrew? The medical examiner. He mm-hmm. creeps me out. Mm-hmm. Like... There is no reason to have made those mistakes. And he's the only one at that at the end of this can call the fatal, uh, fatal inquiry. Like he's mm-hmm. the one that can put pressure on the government to do that. And I don't want that guy leading a fatal inquiry. I want that guy to be inquired yeah. upon. Like those errors are not acceptable from the medical examiner's office. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at this, everything you've been through in the last year, in terms of not not considering the grief but just in terms of the battles you've had to wage what do you think like if andrew can see what you're doing like how would what would he think of the um, the efforts and lengths you've gone through to try to get accountability there's been so many moments where like i just sit here and feel like i can like almost hear him like he had the incredible laugh I was telling you about but like scream laughing you know just like (laughs) you should not have messed with my sister when it comes to me and I just know that he would that he see nothing but loyalty and love in this situation and I feel like he'd do the same for me your motivation if you had to describe it is it justice for the loss of your brother is it nova scotia power to correct you know the way they do things going forward like what's motivating you to spend so much of your well all of your free time fighting this is just knowing that had they done the right thing when luke died that andrew could be here Mm -hmm. so if they did the right thing now then who else are we saving Mm -hmm. and so i feel like for me i i can't stop because it's such a clear and fixable problem. Mm-hmm. And so until it gets fixed, I'm just... As far as um, the battle and fixing things, well, actually, when I prepared this question yesterday, it was going to be what comes next. But I also read the news yesterday, and I think I know what's coming next. So mm-hmm. what? what is... What's new? So it's the... I mean, we filed the lawsuit the other day, right? right the day before the one year when we had the chance to it's I mean it's kind of crazy that you only have a year to file that claim and they have two years to do their investigation so you have to make the decision without really even knowing what they did right so I think that like the way that it's set up just allows them to be totally negligent in their investigation process right yeah yeah. and even down the road like when they take the charges to court the family can then file um, for a freedom of information request and get access to the information surrounding the investigation that resulted in those specific charges that came out in court. Mm-hmm. It's your family versus, and who is the lawsuit filed against? Isn't the it? Department of Justice and the Department of Labor. Okay. Yeah, so both. Okay. For being neg- negligent in his death or in the investigation? Into in, death? in the investigation okay. process. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's complicated. I want to ask you if this is, throughout the year of you doing all this, Getting back to the beginning of our discussion, you've lost your brother, a best friend. How does, how do you deal with his death and the grief associated with it while all this other stuff is going on? Like, are you, have you, has there even been a time where you could just sit down and grieve your brother without, you know, being in your battle armor for all this other stuff? Not really. I don't think at this point in time, like, I think that there's going to come a point where like, I'm kind of actually scared of when that point of time is where it's like, okay, this is real. But, like, when, it, like, I definitely had a good cry yesterday. It was the one-year mark, and I didn't think that it was going to hurt. But what really hurts is knowing that next, I mean, now it's two. Everything's two, mm-hmm. right? So it's weird. And 
like my little brothers, my only sibling, like I think of things like, you know, my grandfather's sick in the hospital right now. And so Mm -hmm. my dad's taking care of him. And I just think like down the road, like, and my dad's there with his brother. Right. And it's just like everything in my life going forward is going to be without him. Like I have to deal with everything. And, Mm -hmm. and I have to hope that I'm the last one standing in my family. So my parents never have to watch another kid die again. Right. Like it's such a weird reality Mm -hmm. to be in, to be like, I know for a fact that one day I need to be the last person standing here like I don't know and even when we were like buying the grave plots maybe I don't know maybe this is trying to be sure but as when we were buying the grave plots my dad's like joking like we can get like three for one special here because we're going to buy the two next to it and I'm like oh my god like and it makes sense right because like that's what you have to do these are the kind of things that you have to face when you die, when someone dies but obviously like they want to be there with him one day. And I'm like, holy shit, if no one marries me, what's going to happen? Like, I'm going to be, like, sitting on the bench that you guys have placed here or something. Like, get four spots at least. Oh, my. But it's weird, you know, just all the different things that you have to face. Like, the different realities of it all. It's not nice at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. With um, losing someone so young and at the beginning of, of life, what was what was that like? Like, for, like... For his friends and family it was hard and it was even harder because it was during covid and all my uh-huh. family's from out west so we basically had no family members there so it was like a lot of, like a lot of his friends were there and stuff and we had a really nice celebration of life i hate calling it that because i don't know celebration and anniversary they sound like like happy terms and these things are just so not happy but we called it is a celebration of life. And we had it in his backyard that he loved. And they put up, like, thousands of lights. And they had, like, 20 different fire pits and, like, a bunch of different drinks and fireworks and, like, barbecue. And mm. they just kind of, in his backyard, like, one of his last posts on social media was of his backyard. And it just said, like, my happy place. So wow. we kind of just set it up as all of his favorite things and had, like, a really nice really nice outdoor party for it. But, like, the funeral and stuff was weird. Like, having to do that eulogy was freaking bizarre. Especially, like, he was... He bought an engagement ring. So I'm planning to be the best, like, MC at a wedding possible. And then all of a sudden I'm writing a eulogy. And mm. so it's weird. Mm-hmm. For people listening that want to support you, support Andrew... Is there anything that people can do that would that would help? I think that the more that we talk about how big this problem is, is really it, you know? Like, I don't know, write to, write to your MPs, your MLAs, literally anyone. Like, just put it on people's radars because, I mean, this is not a story that I thought I was going to ever be involved in you know it could happen to anybody Andrew was an engineer it's not like he was doing a dangerous job it's not like like he was out like I don't know you know like he he was not doing anything dangerous you'd never expect that kind of stuff to happen right so I just think that like it needs to be put more on the radar that these things are happening and they're happening because the government's not doing their job to keep people uh, safe in the first place Mm -hmm. and even the most simple ways like requiring a sign at a dam like Mm -hmm. and you know like the problem really is too like the department's supposed to be going to all these job sites and checking them and doing like safety checks and etc they never do any of those Mm -hmm. like you can look up stories online where it's like the number of actual times they go out to job sites is so few so they are kind of negligent in the first place because they don't go and check on anything Mm -hmm. ever um for people who want to stay up to date and everything that's going on, I follow you on Twitter and you're very active to share developments. Is there anywhere you would suggest people go or do to follow along with what's going to happen next? I don't know. I, I feel like I'm so day by day in how this is, whole thing has been happening, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't ever, I don't have a plan. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with the lawsuit. I'm literally just like, I feel like since the day that Andrew died, it's just been process of like dealing with everything like day by day hour by hour and like not getting too far ahead of myself or overwhelmed and so I don't know where things are gonna go I do know though that I'm not gonna back down on this I want to thank you for joining Nicole and I in our discussion surrounding her family's tragedy although Nicole and I spoke at length here There's even more to this story than we didn't get into. 
I've added links to a variety of past news articles that'll give you even more detail on this story. But as you heard Nicole say during our discussion, she's far from giving up. I'm sure there's a lot more of this story to come. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode of Nighttime, but before we part, I'm going to give some thanks. First, a big thank you for Nicole Nizdowski for sharing an evening with me and with the listeners of Nighttime. Nicole, if you're listening, I want to personally commend you on the work you've done advocating for Andrew. The amount of frustration and emotion you're being forced to go through is simply horrific. But having sat with you and seen you express your dedication firsthand, I truly believe that there aren't enough bureaucrats in the world to slow you down. Every worker in this province and their families owe you a debt of gratitude, as it's people like you that truly motivate those responsible for protecting others. My hat's off to you. Next, a big shout out to Monty Data for contributing to music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thanks to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take some weight off the show's back, please listen on the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can keep the show alive and give yourself more of it at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Ryan, Gisela, Nicole, Blake, Patty, and Caroline. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing these episodes across social media. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, find me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact or on social media. I'm using Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.